Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, we talk to Jen Wilkin. Jen works at the Village Church Training Institute and has written several books and Bible studies, including None Like Him and Women of the Word. Jen is one of the best Bible teachers I know and particularly is really helpful in helping lay people in the church know how to understand and read their Bibles better. So today we talk about biblical interpretation and hermeneutics, how to teach that to people to help them understand their Bibles better. We also talk a little bit about parenting as somebody who has raised kids who are now beginning to leave the house. What are some tips that she has for raising kids who love the Lord and who are confident in who they are in their identities? So I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Jen. This episode is brought to you by B&H Academic. You can go to bhacademic.com to find out about all of their latest books and offerings. We're also brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Go to csbible.com to learn more about this Bible translation and all the study Bibles and resources that they have. And now, my conversation with Jen Wilkin. But first, no big deal. Jen Wilkin on the line. Jen, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Hey, glad to do it, Brandon. You've been uh, a friend and an encouragement to me for a long time. And my favorite story that I want to tell about you uh, on the podcast is I was teaching a hermeneutics class last semester and um, I called you and I said, hey, can you help me uh, think through just some practical ways to teach the Bible, teach hermeneutics to um, you know, freshmen, basically, because you've taught in the church forever. You've, you know, you know, most of my students are basically lay people. And uh, you gave me one of the best pieces of advice that you gave me was to have them all write down their uh, life first, quote unquote. And uh-huh. then, uh, and then uh, they had to basically talk about the context, like what's the context of the passage, what happens in the book and all this stuff. And I sent you a picture of all of them looking like they were about to uh, pull their hair out because they were so, uh, like it just panicked them whenever I said that. So I wanna thank you for giving me a tool to panic my students. Oh, it's my pleasure. My pleasure to create panic everywhere I go. I've done that at conferences before. Obviously, they don't have time to do an exercise around it. But when you ask them, you know, what's your life first? And they get that warm, fuzzy look on their face. And then they, do you know what comes before? Do you know what comes after? And you, they just shrink. But then, obviously, to point them toward, hey, you should know that. There's a good way to, to back that up. Yeah. Funny. My favorite was about, you know, Probably ten of the of them basically said that's not my favorite life verse anymore. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, Jen, could you share a little bit? You've done a, a lot of great work. Uh, Women of the Word um, came out in 2014. Was uh, you know super influential and helpful book. Um, I've given it to guys and said, hey, I know there's like a leotard joke in here, but otherwise, you know, <laughs> it's a uh, Women of the Word is a little bit of a um, misleading title in, in the sense of what you have in there is something anybody can learn. So, how did you get into uh, Bible teaching, how did you sort of develop some of the tools that you use now in Bible teaching? And what are some of those kind of practical tools that you've said, hey, I've kind of started honing these in and working on these. And here's a handful of things that I've learned over over the years of teaching the Bible in the church. Yeah, I, I got into it kind of by accident. I, um, I got an English degree in college and had always loved writing and had done a ton of reading of the classics. Both of my parents have English degrees. I grew up in a nerdy house full of readers. And um, and so got out of college and started my <clears throat> first job and we got involved. <clears throat> excuse me, haven't talked at all this morning. Um, we got involved in uh, a local church and um, 
had my first child and started staying at home and went to Bible study uh, on, a, on a Wednesday morning just to get out of the house and put on some clothes and um, got there and, and it was a Beth Moore study. It was the very first one she had ever published and saw her teaching and thought, wow, I did not know a woman could do that. I just had not seen that before or heard that before. And, um, and at the time, that was pretty much what my church had going on were, were those studies. Um, that and, It was in the summer, so that was all they had going on. And then we got to the fall, and they had probably 12 different studies that were going on. You can kind of pick and choose. And uh, I ended up eventually doing a, an inductive format of Bible study. And when I got into that room, I thought, okay, these are my people. Like Because basically they were applying literacy tools to the Bible. They were treating the Bible like a book. Um, and I began to wonder why are there only a handful of women in this room and there are hundreds of women in this other room um, what's what's the difference and why aren't these two rooms overlapping with one another more and began to want to give basic inductive tools um, combined with teaching that was um, really bringing to life the work that had been done with the tools leading up to the teaching time and um, couldn't find a curriculum that did what I wanted it to do, which is not to say there weren't good curricula out there, just that, you know, at the point that you're ready to invest as a, as a volunteer, as a lay leader, and you're ready to invest that level of time into something, you really wanted to do exactly what you wanted to do. Or at least I did. Uh, I probably just didn't know that I had a curriculum writer hiding inside myself. Um, and so I just started writing my own stuff and, um, and that's kind of where I ended up. It was a desire to see the Bible treated with at least the respect that we would give to any other book that we pick up. And um, and I wanted us to give it um, the same kind of attention and care that we would give to the works of Shakespeare or that we would give um, to the Iliad or something like that. And obviously, it's not those. It's way more than literature, but it, but it is certainly literature. And it has rules that it's following. And... Um, and and just began to grow in my awareness that the average person in the pews had not gotten access to that vantage point on the scriptures and that they had slipped into a pattern where they sat each week and they received um, teaching passively from an expert and they perceived themselves to be the amateur. Um, and that was that was kind of the ecosystem in the church at the time. And so what did it look like for you to um, go from, okay, I want to be a lay leader. I want to teach the Bible. I love doing this. Uh, because by the time, if I'm right about this, by the time you published uh, Women of the Word, you already had some sort of staff position at the village, right? Well, kind of. I was working on the communications team in an hourly role editing the blog. So I was not, uh, they, they did not at that time have a, a Christian education uh, wing or arm as part of the organization. Um, so I was actually, I had taken that job just to earn a little money to help put my kids through school. Uh, and, um, and I was blogging myself. So I, I, I knew I could do that, but, um, I wasn't that invested in the organization. And at the time, the village, like many other churches had embraced a simple church model and had said that home groups was where all of the, um, daily life of the church was going to take place. They were beginning to see that that was not going to be a sustainable model from a discipleship standpoint. Um, but at the time that I wrote women of the word, they weren't, they weren't at the point yet where they were ready to make staffing changes along those lines. But I was teaching. I had a parachurch study in the community, um, 
that was at that point, I guess we probably had about, it was about 800 women that were meeting at, at, a, at a Methodist church in the community for Bible study every week. And so what were some of the things that you picked up on as you started teaching women as you were um, interacting with, okay, I want to teach them how to study the Bible. What were some things that you noticed right away in terms of biblical literacy, in terms of just some of the obvious blind spots that uh, you noticed and said, man, these are some walls that I've got to break through. Well, the first was um, a Christian subcultural barrier, particularly within all women's groups. And so one of the reasons that Women of the Word is called Women of the Word and not People of the Word is because that was such a huge hurdle at the time that I was writing the book and in the years leading up to it. Um, If you said women's ministry, people thought a particular thing. It was a particular thing. It was a feelings level gathering that's primary goal was to build community and there would be some sort of devotional approach to the Bible that would be tagged on to whatever was happening. Uh, and I'm, I'm overstating my point right now. I'm sure there are women who are listening who would say that was not the case at my church, but generally that was the, that was the idea of what women's ministry was. It was to be a place for women to gather and feel inspired and feel moved and connected to one another. And, and those are actually not terrible things. It's just that there was a, there was a, there was a hole in, in, in the offering. And not only that, um, women, had almost uh, entirely come to view their faith as a feeling instead of as something that um, that was grounded in fact uh, and that was grounded in a particular book that was giving them a vision of God high and lifted up so um, so one of the things that I wanted to do with women of the word was was push through some of the messages that had been given to women in particular but were not limited to a female audience um, regarding how we should approach the Bible should you, in a moment of decision, um, pray and ask the Lord to give you wisdom, close your eyes, uh, randomly open to a page and point and then read the verse and see if it's giving you insight? Um, you know, should you um, um, uh, say, well, the Holy Spirit will just guide me, so it doesn't really matter what I read? Um, should you um, read your own story into the story with no reference point for the original audience, those kinds of things. So trying to pull women toward, no, 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 hey, this is just just a basic way of approaching the scriptures um, that has been honored throughout the centuries. Like it's, it's historic. It's not a new approach. It's, it's, it's an old thing recently forgotten. And so what are, when you're teaching the Bible uh, to lay people, you're teaching in the church, what are you Um, What are the three or four things that you're trying to get them to always think about when they're looking at the text? Like, what is the sort of structure or method that you are you are giving somebody in the church? Well, I want them to move through three stages, um, comprehension, interpretation and application. And I laugh a little because um, at the time that I was formulating my approach, I was not aware that many others had done an approach where they say observation, interpretation, application. I had no idea that was even out there. And then when I um, came across it, um, I thought, oh, should I, should I alter the way I've been talking about this? But I actually ended up sticking with comprehension as the first step rather than observation, because uh, in my head at least, observation is more of a subjective way of reading than comprehension. Comprehension is asking what did the author want me to find here. Uh, observation could be that, but it could also be just something that I saw. So I ended up keeping comprehension also because then you have a neat little acronym that spells CIA, and that's a nice memory for women. Uh, so 
So uh, I want them to read first for comprehension, then for interpretation, asking what does it mean, and then for application, how does it change the way that I live. And and what many people were accustomed to is reading and jumping immediately to how should it change me. Um, and so the biggest piece of that three-part formula that needed to be trained and restored to people's approach is the comprehension piece, just knowing what the text says. Um, because false teachers or sloppy teachers <laughs> rely on you not having that. Uh, it's like the exercise that you did with your students, right? Um, my life verse is, is whatever it means to me, uh, and, and I don't need a reference point for comprehending where it fits in the context of a bigger passage. I just need that verse to do what I need it to do for me. Um, and so moving people toward, no, hey, actually, you're going you're, you're gonna to find a better life verse if it's rooted in a context that's built out not only in the book that you're in, but throughout the whole story of the Bible. So I wanted to give people tools to comprehend, which means you're asking them to read repetitively through an entire book of the Bible from start to finish versus cherry picking from here to there. Um, you want them to understand <clears throat> all of those pieces of information that you would find in the introduction of a, of a decent study Bible. Who wrote it? To whom was it written? When was it written? All of those contextual pieces that they would need to help them not place their own experience as the primary lens for which they're reading the book or some past teaching that they've heard. And then I wanted them to do basic literacy building things like look up words in the dictionary or mark repeated words or phrases or look for the structure of a passage, just things to help them uh, uncover the meaning that the author had placed there. Because this was another big disconnect that, that a lot of people had. They believed that their job in, in coming to the Bible was to assign a meaning to the text um, when in fact their job is to uncover a meaning that has been placed in the text using good tools. Yeah, and then uh, on top of that, you know, teaching, you teach um, on reading the Bible and hermeneutics, and also um, as the village developed this uh, educational model or the, you know, the village institute, we're actually mm -hmm. doing some actual hands-on theological training and, and more organized uh, type training. You know, you're, you're one of the leaders in that, you're teaching in that regularly, and you don't have a seminary degree, right? So I think you're an encouragement oh. to people who um, I think, you know, think, well, do I need to get a seminary degree before I can learn how to do these things? So talk through a little bit, like how you, um, you know, gathered your own tools and, and where you looked and where you learned how to teach hermeneutics and theology without going to seminary. Because I think that's encouraging for a lot of lay people who don't have that sort of training or for pastors who have people in their church who aren't trained, but who they want to help train to do those things, to be lay leaders. So how did that work for you? Yeah, well, I want to be very upfront and say that I, I, I would have loved to have gotten a seminary degree. It just was never an option for us, either financially or practically. Um, you know, I had four kids in four years, so I, I just had a lot of really, really busy years in there. And then by the time that I was starting to think, oh, you know, maybe I could go audit a class or maybe I could go down and, you know, dare take one class. And again, this was years ago, so not as many remote learning opportunities and all of that. Um, but I just wasn't the next Wilkin in line for higher education at that point. You know, I mean, we were about to send four kids off to college. So it just didn't come together for me from a timing standpoint. Uh, but I felt the fear, and I mean the fear in a positive sense, um, of of not having that, that framework. Um, 
I would never have said, oh, it's fine. Just go do the work and don't worry about those things. You should worry about those things, but you can get access to good resources. Um, you, I was, uh, I was blessed to be in proximity to good conversation partners at the churches that I was a part of. So at my previous church in Houston, I had a couple of co-workers who did have seminary degrees who were willing to dialogue with me. Um, and then also um, my husband, Jeff, the, the two of us um, would read the same things and talk about them. Um, both had a, a comparable interest in, in learning theology. And then um, I had I had good teachers in, in the classes that I took with regard to method, you know, like the, just the ones that were in the local church. Um, I was in precept studies for a number of years that really helped me, you know, develop a sense of, okay, this is, this is not weird to want to read the Bible this way. And then to be able to take um, pieces of that and, and roll them into what I wanted to do on my own. Um, so I think there are women and men who are in the church who don't have formal theological training, but who are active learners, who are avid learners, who may just need access to good materials and mentorship to bring them along so that they can serve in a capacity in the local church. I don't pretend for a minute that I should have been doing the role um, like that JT English, my colleague, has done. He has a PhD. He has, he has, um, he has experience in seminary environments that I don't have that make him a really good fit for building something like the Institute overall. But I do have a part that I can play. And sometimes the part that I can play is, is, um, is something that he couldn't do because I don't have the formal training. But I'm a big fan of women in particular being able to get seminary degrees. Yeah, for sure. And that's what's uh, been really encouraging about you too, is that you, you know, I'm a, um, teaching, you know, at a university. I've been in academic environments for a long time. I like to read the books that only three people like to read about, you know, the Trinity or Doctrine of God or whatever. Um, but you also, you know, you write a book like None Like Him on the Attributes of God and um, nothing personal toward you, but anytime that I see, this is just my own probably academic snobbiness, anytime I see a book that's like, hey, I'm going to teach you some of the deepest truths of the doctrine of God and I'm going to do it in, you know, less than 200 pages and it's going to be very applicable. I'm always a little skeptical. You know, because there's so often the uh, it, 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 it's like, how do I make this uh, applicable and then dumb it down as much as possible to where you're not even really teaching it anymore? Uh, whereas you obviously, you know, don't do that. Um, and so talk through a little bit of that as well. When you're when you're writing in his image or none like him and you're writing on these, uh, you know, deep theological topics, you've done so uh, in a way, at least in my opinion, where you are you're precise theologically. You're not making, you know, bad theological moves on your way to making it ap applicable or even just making it. Um, not even applicable, but just understandable. And so how are, you, how are you thinking through that when you're teaching theology in the church? So if somebody here is listening, a pastor or seminarian who's preparing to teach theology in the church, what are some of the things that you're thinking about when you're saying, okay, I want to go from teaching this you know, doctrine and getting it right to also making sure a layperson can actually understand it? Well, I do think that probably the most useful teaching experience I ever got was the two or three years that we were Jeff and I were teaching middle school Sunday school. We had the seventh grade. Uh, I had the girls with a with a friend, Lori, and he had the boys uh, with Lori's husband. And uh, those those times of teaching were 
eye-opening. Like I remember thinking I was doing seventh grade Sunday school because I was too young for anyone to trust me with an actual adult class. <laughs> and I remember thinking, this is what I'm going to do until I can get to the show, you know, like until I can actually get uh, get a class full of adult humans. And, and then I'll really be able to teach at the level that I want to teach at. And what I learned was you just don't ever – you never uh, should leave behind those simplest ways of approaching um, deep concepts. And in fact, Jeff, his, my husband, his whole ministry has been in children's ministry. So he, on a, on a you know a weekly basis, is taking deep things and making them as simple as possible. Um, but I do think that sometimes those who enter into academia, um, they end up in environments that are. Um, uh, competitive more than they're collaborative. So the classroom is a place for competing for recognition or for who has the 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 sharpest idea. Um, and you can lose a sense of what it's like to be the average learner, um, where what they need is to be pulled along gently. And where if you use the bigger word when you could have chosen the smaller word, you're you're basically shutting up the kingdom of heaven for people who are eager to to enter in. And, uh, and so there are environments where using the big word is rewarded and celebrated. And I, I think we need academic environments. But if those in academia forget what it means to be a translator from those environments down to the local church, um, then, then the local church suffers for that. So um, my most formative influence on my teaching was R.C. Sproul, who never sacrificed the, 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 the depth of the content um, in his efforts to communicate it more simply. And uh, I tried to pay attention to that. I want to be like that because there are more people in the pews than there are in academia. Yeah. Uh, and so we need those people to be growing and, and drawn to the deeper things of God. So I, I see myself as a translator. I'm going to read books that other people aren't interested in, kind of like what you said. Uh but it's not enough for me to simply read those books. I need to be able to give what's in those books to uh, to those who are who are waiting for them and won't otherwise go find them on their own. Yeah, that's really helpful. I, I told a, I had a, a guy here that I'm discipling who wants to be a pastor, and you know, he asked me, you know, you know, you, I was in pastoral ministry for a long time before I came here, and so he said, you know, what are a few things that that you would just say like upfront you have to do? And I said one of them is that I never trust a pastor who's never volunteered in children's ministry. Like if, you, if you've never uh, taught the gospel to a six-year-old, um, there's a part of me that doesn't actually trust that you know what it's like to do that. And children's ministry is the least sexy ministry of all, right? Nobody really sees you. Um, you're, you they're, not gonna, they're not listening to you half the time. You know, the, people just look at you as a babysitter. Uh, when in reality, yes. man, if you're doing it right, and I've been in churches where our kids' ministry has done it right, I mean, you are, you are such a good companion uh, to parents. And so I'm thankful that you said that, and I'm thankful that Jeff uh, has that ministry because that is a, a, you know, as important, if not um, even more important at times, uh, to do mm -hmm. that type of, of elementary and junior high and high school teaching because that's where you're really shaping people. Mm -hmm. So you've uh, raised four kids, as you said, four kids in four years. Did you, have, did you guys have the idea of let's just like get this out of the way? Or, um, you know, or did, was, it, uh, was it all surprises? Well, uh, gosh, it's all such a fog. So I remember Matt, my oldest, was born, and we were like, well, just whenever the Lord wants us to get pregnant again, we will. And uh, so we had Mary-Kate 13 months after Matt. And, um, and then it was like, like, I'm not a risk taker, Brandon. I am the most boring, like, I don't, you know, bungee jump or anything like that. Uh, but this was exhilarating. Like, I would look at a two-month-old and say, we got to do that again right now. <laughs> 
And, and what a gift, you know, that, I mean, people would say, uh, don't you know what causes that? And all those kind of jokes, but like, um, man, I have a ton of friends who had infertility issues. What an absolute gift, you know, that we, we were able to have children without any, um, any trouble at all. And, and it just, at the point that we had had three in under two and a half years, it was like, well, and we knew we wanted four or five and I didn't want to have a big gap in there you know, before we had the next one. So we just, yeah, kept going. <laughs> just um, kept going. Uh, so you, uh, one of the things I was going to ask you about too, is, you know, you've raised these four kids um, and you wrote something, I guess it was a couple of years now. And I think it was for Christianity Today. This is all off the top of my head. and I forgot to, to uh, look this up, but um, about raising uh, brave women, you know, raising girls who, oh, who are, yeah. you know, um, and I thought it was, you know, it was super helpful and stuck in my mind because I have a six-year-old girl, a three-year-old girl, and another girl on the way. And so one of the things, you know, I'm thinking about a lot is uh, how do I raise them to not be wallflowers, to not be taken advantage of, to um, feel like they have something to contribute. And so I, remember, I just remember reading that and being super encouraged by it. My wife was too. So could you talk through first um, just some of your principles, thoughts, ideas on raising girls that way uh, to love Jesus and to be uh, bold in their faith? Yeah, and it's it is to love Jesus and be bold in their faith, but it's also um, as a you know doing that within the subset of having deep relationship with both their mothers and their fathers. And uh, I just think a lot of times, so my it was, came out of my own personal experience as the daughter of a father who stayed invested in me all the way through. You know, he didn't he didn't uh, decide when I hit adolescence that I was a, a foreign uh, creature. He. <laughs> He, he kept a uh, relationship with me and uh, always told me I was beautiful, even though you just don't believe it. You know, you're always like, well, you're saying that because you're my dad. But the point was, is it mattered that my dad thought that, you know, uh, and then he wasn't lying. Uh, whether whether objectively I was beautiful or not, he was going to say it every single time. And um, and so I think when uh, when you're given that um gosh, it just uh, grounds you in a way that you once, I think the article you're referring to had a lot to do with like dating and how some of the messages that get communicated yes. to girls about like, oh, I'm going to go get my shotgun when your date comes over. Exactly. And it's a second that you say that you've said to your daughter, your judgment is so poor uh, that you're going to need me to, to make sure that this guy knows exactly where he stands. And so, you know, I, I grew up in a house where it was no I mean you've been you've been loved and you've been trained and you've been invested in and so why would we expect that you would bring home someone who um, wasn't wasn't someone who was worthy of that kind of a relationship and um, so we tried to do that with, with it's not just with daughters it's with sons also but we don't have the same cultural messages for sons that we do for daughters and some of those are equally toxic but different um, and so, you know, Jeff, I'm, I'm thankful I married someone who, uh, which is not a surprise is a lot like my dad, like he wanted to be with the family. Uh, he invested in the kids, um, constantly he's, and since, you know, he's, he's the, he's the kid person, like he's my ace in the hole. He loves children's ministry, loves being around kids. And so he was a piece of that equation that, that, um, that I wouldn't have been, uh, he's more fun. He's the fun parent. Um, but those girls knew um, that he loved the Lord and that he loved them, and that that uh, that's the that's the we wanted our children's primary reference point for identity 
to be the home, not the sports team or the club that they were in at school, that their, their primary place of belonging was family. Um, so that's what we worked toward because I think that's what the Bible is, is offering up. Yeah, expand on that a little bit more about, about how you kind of see this biblically and scripturally. I think that's really helpful. Well, I mean, you look at Deuteronomy 6, and it says that you're supposed to talk about all of these things when when you um, walk in the way and when you sit in your home. And, and actually, it's kind of funny because, uh, you know, right now with what we're in, I don't know when this will air, but we're in the middle of the quarantine. And so everybody is actually in their homes together in a way that perhaps they haven't been before. And I think, I hope that part of what will happen as a result of this is that some of our paradigms for what it means to be family will be challenged because often families are... Um, are characterized by each child, each member of the family having their own sort of quote social identity. So, like, uh, mom's the Bible teacher, dad is the IT consultant, uh, Matt plays football, Mary plays the piano. You know, we each have our own little thing that we do, and we do it to the uttermost. But the thing, but where's the overlap in what we do together? Um, and so, focusing on the together piece as the primary concern of the of the family. Um, so, in other words, uh, when mom teaches the Bible, we said to the kids, you know, I'm not I'm not going off and doing my thing, and you're here at home. If you're at home taking care of your business so that I can go and do those things, then you're actually partnering with me in in doing that, uh, or you know, bringing the girls along when I would go to uh, to do an event. Uh, we even had a thing with our children where. Uh, whatever the event was that the person was involved in or whatever the sport was, we were all going to go to the game or we were all going to go to the performance. It wasn't divide and conquer because we actually felt like dividing up for those things was probably a, a loss in the long run if that was what characterized us as a family. Yeah, I don't know if you saw, did you see the article um, that David Brooks wrote recently uh, about the nuclear family? I saw it going around, but I didn't read it. Oh man, you should read it. Um, he basically says that, you know, the, the whole uh, idea that you have two parents and 2.5 children and that's all you need um, is, uh, has been proven to be disastrous because there aren't enough shock absorbers in that small unit for, for people to get through hard times. And so um, I think what he's pointing to is this idea that um, you want their identity to be formed in, in, your, in your family unit. And he would even say, and I would argue too, within your extended family um, but uh, I think that as a, as a culture, we have moved away from that. We think that identity, or we unintentionally end up with homes that are structured so that identity is found outside of the home. So what are, you, um, what are some sort of rules or basic principles you guys said, okay, in our home, these are the handful of things that we do that are important to us, that are sort of our you know, family mission statement or whatever you want to call it, um, that you found helpful as you raised your four kids? Um, I actually have it. It's it's old. It's linked on my website. But we did a parenting class on this at the village years ago, um, where we talked about all of the shared things that we wanted to keep as our our focus. And so um, we have a shared language, shared time, um, shared faith, um, shared responsibilities. Um, I'm trying to. I'm missing one right now. I can't think of them off the top of my head. But um, my baby just turned 20 this week, so you'll have to excuse me for being a little But the idea that a family is designed to, to have a lot of overlap and, and not, not meaning that um, we never invest in things outside of the home, obviously, but that home is, is the place that we see as our primary place of belonging. 
Yeah, we, um, you know, we've had, you know, with a six and a three-year-old and one on the way, um, you know, we're in the middle of the quarantine, like you said. So there's a lot more uh, FaceTime going on right now. And so yeah. uh, the six-year-old, <laughs> six you know, she um, uh, was used to going to kindergarten every day. And she's, she's one of those. She's uh, not upset about not being in kindergarten or anything. Uh, she's yeah. happy to be home. So, you know, mom's trying to make sure that she's keeping up with the homework they sent home or whatever. But, you know, we're running into uh, it's, it is that forced uh, relationship you talked about where the six year old yeah. and the three year old are having to learn, uh, kind of relearn almost like, hey, you guys got to work together. You guys got to do this stuff together. You can't fight and say mine uh, right. all day, every day. Um, right. But there is that level of, you know, where I'm, I'm gone a few days a week, still at the office and uh, just trying to get work done. And so trying to help, you know, Krista not be uh, having to shoulder all of it by herself because, you know, I, I, every time I try to shoulder two by myself, it feels crazy. So the fact that you had four in four years was, uh, you guys are, are heroes of mine. Well, um, you know, in a lot of ways, it was, it, 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 it was harder at first, but it ended up being, they were a peer group for each other, right, which yeah. was really cool. And they still are. That was really, really sweet. So, you yeah, know, and keep, we don't, we we don't that, get, like if they grow up, like eventually they're three years, they're all going to be three years apart, basically, you know, eventually they're going to be at least relatively close enough in age that they'll be friends and like each other. Yeah. 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 Ultimately it'll work out. <laughs> even if, even if it's a little rocky early on. And, and honestly, you know, like we had the, the least amount of um, sibling uh, affection for years between the oldest and the youngest. Not, I mean, they, it wasn't like they didn't like each other, but just that that di distance in years just changes how that how that works out in a way that you know is not there for perhaps a, a closer age distance. So, what's your advice for? Um, it's funny to say this because I just. Um, I feel like there's, how do you, how do you, um, say this, uh, to a woman without being offensive, but you guys are empty nesters now. And so we you are. guys have, <laughs> you know, um, a lot of time, uh, not a lot of time on your hands, but it's just different. So, um, what is some of your advice for people who are empty nesters while you're still in a career and still doing all these other things? Um, now that you don't have, you know, in some ways don't have the four kids all day, every day to take up a large part of your time. Oh, do you mean my advice for parents of small children? No, advice for, for empty nesters. For people oh, who man, kind of I don't know. Situation. I'm still figuring that out. I mean, I think, you know, Jeff and I um, like each other, which is good. Like, <laughs> you know, he jokes, he's like, it's like being newlyweds again, only with a little more money. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, that, that's been fun. Uh, we're kind of rediscovering, you know, the things that we've always enjoyed um, doing together. And um, so I don't know. I don't have advice for empty nesters yet. I'm still working that out on my own other than just, gosh, I really hope you like your spouse because it's going to be... <laughs> I think that's the weird thing is you think when you start having kids, you're like, this is going to be my whole life. But it's really a pretty short period of time in the grand scheme of things that you you raise children. And most of your life, you're either just yourself or you're with your spouse. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, those are those are things to pay attention to for sure. Well, I guess maybe, yeah, maybe the big picture is um, try not to let your marriage suffer uh, for your kids so that you still like each other once they leave. Yeah. Well, uh, Jen, thanks so much uh, for taking some time uh, to come on today. Like I've, I've told you before, and I'm not just saying because you're on here because I told you this when nobody's listening, but um, you are <laughs> one of my favorite Bible teachers, favorite writers. Um, you have uh, taught me as much about teaching uh, the Bible and theology in a local church as any seminary professor I've ever had. So I'm grateful for your ministry, and uh, hopefully uh, just even the short combo will help other people the same way. Oh, thanks, Brandon. It was good to be on with you.